isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. This week marked the three-year anniversary since Brexit, the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union. So on this episode of the Sunday debate, we're revisiting what some would call a simpler time, pre-Brexit Britain. In May 2016, a month before the referendum, Intelligence Squared staged the Great Brexit Debate. Our chair for it was Jonathan Friedland, Guardian columnist, author and broadcaster, and he was joined by a panel of six influential voices, including Nick Clegg and Gisela Stewart. Now we're nearly seven years on from that generational vote. Were our panellists' predictions correct? Did the fears or hopes come to fruition? Let's take a journey now back to the Great Intelligence Squared Brexit debate. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks to all of you for coming this evening. As you know, it is May the 23rd. It is just one month to go. I know you can hardly wait. The excitement palpable as we count down uh, to the referendum. Uh, I think it's fair to say that both sides would agree how high the stakes are. Uh, The Prime Minister has been saying this is bigger than a general election, and I think even his opponents... Uh, both inside and outside his own cabinet, uh, would agree with that, that the stakes are very high. This, people overuse the phrase once in a generation, but in political terms, actually, the last time anything like this happened was two generations ago, and whatever is decided on June the 23rd will surely uh, hold for a long, long time to come. So the stakes very high. Uh, we have brought together a range of voices, we hope, that will really illuminate uh, the debate. I haven't imposed any kind of no-Hitler rule on the discussions, but I think we are going to elevate the level of debate tonight. Let me just say something about the format, and then we'll, go, we'll plunge right in. Uh, the way it's going to work, we have, besides the antagonists, if you like, or the main participants here, we have a panel of uh, three wise heads over here, and I'll just say a word to introduce them. They are uh, lecturer in politics at Cambridge University and the author of the European Union a Citizen's Guide, Chris Bickerton. We also have the Professor of European Politics at the University of Sheffield, Simon Bulmer, and a Professor of European Law at the London School of Economics is Damien Chalmers. So our three wise men will be there and joining them in the role of sort of Inquisitor General and our prime uh, fact Uh, reality uh, truth checker is Will Moy, who runs a group called Full Fact, entirely neutral, uh, and they are there to provide and to settle any disputes of fact as the evening goes on. So if either of our two main speakers uh, strays into the post-truth universe, uh, Will Moy is there to haul them back, and he is backed by the Truth Squad, who are out of sight and behind the scenes. They, they really are there. There are five of them beavering away, uh, and they will communicate with Will, and we will hope to settle any le- uh, factual 
legal disputes maybe differently, any factual disputes with them. But, as I said, the main arguments are going to come from the two people next to me here, and I thought we should uh, welcome them, uh, arguing the case that the United Kingdom, United Kingdom should remain in the European Union is the man who was Deputy Prime Minister in the coalition government and the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg. And opposing him and making the case for leave is the Labour MP who was both born and raised in Germany and is joint chair of the Vote Leave campaign, Gisela Stewart. Before we hear from them, I just want to remind you that you were polled uh, coming in, uh, acting as our rather large focus group, uh, on the very question that the country itself is going to confront uh, on June the 23rd. Should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union? Your votes are being counted right now. I will give you the result of that initial vote after we've heard these two speeches. And then, of course, you'll be voting again, some of you perhaps changing your minds and changing your position uh, as the evening goes on. And I will give that vote, obviously, at the end of the evening. Um, but for now, uh, we'll bring you that result later. But for now, what we're going to do is uh, hear that first argument. And so to make the opening case, and I'm going to have to be very strict and give you a limit of 12 minutes, to make the, her opening case for Britain to leave the European Union, Gisela Stewart. Thank you very much, Jonathan. And I brought this along, not particularly because I want you to vote Labour, but I brought this along just to remind any Labour voters that it is perfectly legitimate, honourable and possible to wish to vote Leave and be a Labour member. <laughs> and I shall part make the case as well. Now, I don't know how you start the day, but I started with a heavy dose of liquid caffeine and then I read the press cuttings. And I just thought Sunday started off by saying 9 o'clock NHS England Simon Stevens said, Brexit could be very dangerous. Penny Morden hit out and says it's an establishment hit out. Eddie Izzard said he would be working hard to get you all to vote. Followed by Harriet Harman saying Turkey will never join the EU. Lord, Lord Owen saying, oh yes, they will because we're accelerating it. And then David Cameron denouncing Penny Morden. And by that stage, we are only at 10 a.m. That's the first hour's onslaught. It goes on like that and I won't bore you with it. But essentially, what I'm saying is, if you're confused, for those of you old enough to remember the original soap, it used to have these kind of opening signs, recap what happened in the last few weeks. And then it said, confused? If not, you will be by the end of tonight's episode. <laughs> so I'm trying to bring some clarity into this by some basic principles. And uh, Jonathan started by mentioning what David Cameron said about this being more important than general election. And originally I thought, yeah, he's probably right. And then I thought, no, he's not. Unless he's telling me that Brussels is more important than Westminster. This is more important because it's a once-in-a-generation vote. But in terms of importance, I regard general elections to be more important. Similarly, Nicola Sturgeon, who is in London today, uh, not entirely sure why she's suddenly become the great friend of the Union, but there she is, uh, was saying that we needed to stay in in order to fetter Westminster. 
Well, I thought that rather went to the core of where I have a problem. I don't want to fetter Westminster. I want Westminster to be regularly sacked by you, the voters, if they don't agree with what you do. So what is tonight about? It is not about that if you vote leave on the 23rd of June, there will be fog in the channel, the continent will be cut off, television sets will turn black and white, Brentford Nylands will become compulsory because duvets have just been taken away from you, um, and everything since 1973, because it has been a contribution by the European Union, will be taken away from you. No. What I'm saying is, this is a vote to look at the 21st century and the way you are governed. I'm for alliances. I think NATO is enormously important, but NATO doesn't have a court, a parliament, or overrules UK law. I think international institutions are enormously important. I think it's important that we are the UN, that we are a big player, and all this will go on happening. It is also not about claiming that everything that is being done by two countries who happen to be members of the European Union and do bilateral things like intelligence sharing is an attribute to the European Union. So let's just cut out some of the nonsense that's being talked. And also, why am I on this side of the debate? You know, I arrived, again, looking around, some of you will remember what it was like, three-day week, this country was a basket case. You had just joined the European Union, that place where the glitz was happening, where they actually were already eating salami and having pesto and all those kind of things, whereas the United Kingdom was just about to discover this. But the world has changed, and the thing which has changed it has both been the continued expansion of the European Union, its continued belief that it can widen and deepen, and then the euro happened. And the minute the euro happened, you had a position where a set of countries required deeper political integration to make it work. And other countries, like the United Kingdom, who ever since Maastricht, by the way, said in 1994, there's some things which we will not do. We will not have a common area of, of free passport travel. We will not join the, the, the single currency. But you could pretend that this was two speeds roughly going in the right direction. Once the euro was introduced, you no longer had that option. And now it comes to something more general. All this debate, which is so confusing at the moment, you know, single market, WTO, tariffs, all this stuff. You'd think for a moment that trade happens because nation states sign a piece of paper. I have news for you. Trade happens because someone invents a better mousetrap, which someone else, someone wants to buy. So trade is a condition of having innovation, of having the means, of having the skills. So trade will still happen. So if people say, if you vote leave, we will lose the single market. No, we will not. You know, the Germans will still buy the Mini, and we will still buy BMWs, and the Italians will still sell the shoes. The second one is when they talk about immigration, and this is really important. We have spent for a long time telling ourselves that this is something which we mustn't talk about. Because if you talk about control of borders and immigration, you are a racist. I regard it as a function of the nation state to have a policy as to who lives and does not live in your country, a policy designed by consent of its people. And that consent to me is more important than anything else. I'm a Birmingham MP. Significant numbers of that city come from the former Commonwealth, second, third generation. They find it really difficult that because of pressure of half a billion who are allowed to come in without any question. 
we're tightening up so severely on what they think are historic links. They don't think that is fair. And I'm afraid I happen to agree with them. So my argument on immigration and control, and by the way, when the government tells you we control our borders, no. What we do is we have permission to ask people to show you a piece of paper called a passport. That is not the same as control. And therefore, I think the, the pressure on your public services, the pressure on, on tensions which are building up, I think should be with the nation state. And the final thing is, you know when we go into a general election, we go and say, are we going to have tuition fees? Are we going to free bus passes? What are we going to do? I test for the over 70s. That is a reflection of me saying, I have no money as a government. I take it out of your pockets. I call it taxes. And these are the priorities I shall spend it on. That's what general elections are about. These kind of issues become a proxy for decisions of your values. In the European Union, you have no such choice. And that takes me to one of the problems I think I have with my Labour colleagues. They at the moment say, if we leave, workers' rights will go. Well, I remember the Delors Commission, when in the 1980s, it is true, it was a very socialist commission that gave us rights which Margaret Thatcher didn't give us. But maternity rights, paternity rights, all these kind of things, the UK government has actually been more generous and more forward-looking than the European Union has been since. And also, if you have a commission that is two-thirds centre-right governments, two-thirds centre-right parliament, two-thirds centre-right council of ministers, they're not going to be socialist, are they? So to me, dear Labour colleagues, it's the strongest reason I have for voting Labour, because I don't want Westminster to be trammeled, and I think they have been the great protectors of our rights. So to me, the 23rd of June, when I say it is about taking control, it is about you being in charge on the decisions which are being made. It's about you deciding the money which goes to Brussels and how it's spent here. And ever since Margaret Thatcher, roughly speaking, whatever you want the gross figure, and I, I won't put her... I'm keeping busy. Do you want to be kept busy? Shall I say 350 million? Okay, I should say 350 million a week, and then you can come back and tell me why this is a gross contribution and get something back and all these things. But roughly speaking, ever since Margaret Thatcher, for every two pounds we pay in, we get one pound back, and that one pound we get back is under conditions. So I think we're going to be stronger because our economy is strong if we vote leave. I think we're going to be safer because we've got greater control over our borders if we vote leave. And I think we're going to be better off. And we're going to be better off because the European Union was created in a time when big trading blocks existed. They don't exist anymore. What we've got now is global trading of goods, global trading of services, and we also have global movement of people. None of these things the EU is capable of dealing with. It has outgrown its time. I wish the Euro countries well. They need deeper integration. They need it because I don't want whole generations of young people to be on a heap of unemployment. I wish them well. I think we're better off to vote leave. If we are strong and they are strong, then the continent of Europe is strong. If we're collectively weak, that will serve no one. So take control, vote leave. Thank you. Thank you.
since, since you almost uh, did an act of provocation then from, from, <laughs> from Will Moy and our Truth Squad, why don't we just go for this? It's, it's, it's the factual claim that has been most disputed. It's on the side of the Vote Leave buses. Britain sends £350 million every week to the EU. Will Moy, true or false? Um, well, wrong, if you put it that way. We don't send £350 million to the EU. Um, every week. That ignores the rebate which Margaret Thatcher negotiated. We send £250 million a week to the EU. Um, the other figure that's important in this debate, which you may well hear, is that the EU spends some money in the UK, um, which the UK doesn't control. Um, that adds up to about £85 million a week. So if you want the what we would pay without the rebate, it's £350 million. If you want what we actually pay, it's £250 million. And then there's the £85 million that comes back, largely to farmers and poorer areas of the country. I think you may have saved at least 90 seconds of our next speaker's uh, speech. And just to remind you, this is very much going to be a debate. So after we've heard from these two and some of the other people up here, we are, of course, going to open it out and hear contributions, questions, etc., from all of you. Uh, but it is now time to hear the case for Remain. And here to do that for us, Nick Clegg. Thank you. Um, so... So I assume, like uh, Gisela said at the outset of her remarks, that many of you are getting pretty weary with all the claims and counterclaims that are being made over our heads by the uh, uh, protagonists, the national protagonists uh, for and against the United Kingdom staying in the European Union. I assume quite a lot of you are here because you are of sort of no fixed abode on this great decision yet. You haven't quite made up your mind yet whether you think we should stay uh, or go, and perhaps, perhaps because we have on stage here some terrifyingly intelligent uh, academics and some meticulous uh, fact-checkers, you are also hoping that today will reveal, like lifting a stone and finding a sort of shimmering diamond underneath, the one fact, the one statistic, oh, that's the one that's finally made up my mind. Now I'm going to vote either out or in. So I've got bad news for you. I don't think that fact, that statistic, exists. I don't think there is a single silver bullet uh, factoid which anyone can tell you. I don't think there's a, a silver bullet statistic which will change uh, your mind utterly. Why? Because when all is said and done, actually what you are being asked to do on the 23rd of June is not get out a pocket calculator and come up with some sort of mathematical formula that tells you what to do, you'll be asked to make a judgment. Each and every one of us on the 23rd of June is being asked to make a judgment about what we think is right for us, for our family, for our community, for our nation, and indeed what we anticipate the world will look like that we will inhabit in the future. That's the judgment we have to make. So, so the bad news is I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a science. This is a judgment about what we believe individually and collectively to be right for our country. And it is my sincerely held judgment, clearly one not shared by others, that if you look at the world around us, there are many, many forces which impact upon us, which have a direct effect on our safety, on our well-being, 
on the cleanliness of our air, on the purity of our drinking water, on the crime on our streets, on the jobs in our communities, which we don't control on our own and we never will be able to. We don't control climate change. Of course not. That crosses borders. We don't, we don't control the, the industrial-scale criminality which now, unfortunately, operates across borders and continents. We don't control the great surges and ebb and flow of uh, global economics. No, it is my judgment that for us to control our destiny as fully as we can in that footloose, fancy-free world of ours where there are so many things that escape the clutches of the nation-state, we're better equipped to do that. We're better equipped to provide my children, your children, our grandchildren, I don't have grandchildren yet, but I hope to one day, uh, with jobs, with security, with safety, with a clean environment. We are best equipped to do all of those things for future generations by working hand in glove with our neighbors, with our friends in Europe, because we get more done together than we ever possibly could on our own. By the way, it is exactly the same judgment it's exactly the same analysis, if you like, of the world that we inhabit that was made during the last referendum we had in this country, or rather that took place in Scotland, about whether Scotland should remain part of the family of nations that makes up the United Kingdom or not. And ironically, quite a lot of the leading Brexiteers who are now ferociously denouncing any pooling of decision-making, any sharing of decision-making with other countries, with our European neighbours, made precisely the reverse argument when arguing, I think rightly, that we are stronger together and weaker apart as a family of nations in the United Kingdom. And I think that central judgment is just as valid when working together in Europe as it is in working together in our own union of the United Kingdom. So that's the first key point. Maybe, maybe one of you will be swept up uh, by the power uh, of a particular fact that you hear today but my view is, at the end of the day, we're all going to have to make a judgment between different risks and different probabilities. It isn't an exact science. It's something we have to judge ourselves. The second point is this. I can't, and I won't, promise you perfection. Perfection is for religion, not for politics. The world isn't perfect. Life isn't perfect. The European Union, guess what, is not perfect. Of course it isn't. When I worked in the, in the uh, EU, I remember vividly there was a... It took the EU, maybe it was called then the European Community, it, it took the... There was a long, long, long debate. It went on, a dispute. It went on for 15 years about the definition of chocolate. Because there's a great standoff between us, the United Kingdom, who wanted our good old-fashioned vegetable fat to be included as a key ingredient, a recognised ingredient of chocolate, and the chocolate purists who said they wanted coca, not uh, that uh, aberrant ingredient, uh, vegetable fats, to be included. It took 15 years for the European Union to, to decide the definition of chocolate. Anything I suggest to you that takes a decade and a half to agree on what chocolate is, is imperfect. <laughs> it's also, parenthetically, I don't think some sort of rampant superstate trampling over our Magna Carta rights if it takes a decade and a half to decide on something as mundane as chocolate. So it is imperfect. Guess what? So is Westminster. So is Whitehall. So are our political institutions. I spent five years as, as Deputy Prime Minister in Whitehall. At the end of that, I came out more anti-establishment than I went in. 
Because I was so appalled, I still am, by the secrecy, the over-centralization, the, of course, I say this as a liberal democrat, the lopsided and undemocratic electoral system we have. All of those things I think are rubbish. It's imperfect. I want it changed. But guess what? I'm not going to say in response to the imperfections in our own political institutions, we're going to raise the whole lot to the ground and walk off. You don't do that in life, do you? When something's imperfect, you recognize it, you try and make it better, you work with others to do so. But the idea that you can sort of wash your hands of it because you don't like its imperfections, turn your back on it, pull the drawbridge up, wish it away, that's just, I just don't think that is a practical uh, response to the realities of the uh, complex and interdependent world and the complex and interdependent European Union uh, and the complex institutions uh, that govern it that we, uh, that we have here today. Third and final point. Um, there are, and there will be during the hour or whatever we're together, there'll be lots of issues, foreign policy, climate change, sovereignty or not, immigration, and so on. But I do attach disproportionate significance to the economic issues at stake for one very simple reason. I just do not believe that we can build the kind of country we want, decent public services, opportunities for future generations, and so on, unless we have an economy which is prosperous, which is dynamic, which is innovative, and which creates those further economic opportunities for future generations. And whilst Gisela and I will no doubt indulge in claim and counterclaim, I think it is indisputable that there is something economically very valuable about an economy as open as ours. We've always been a great open trading uh, economy to be an integral part of what is the world's largest borderless marketplace and particularly part of this thing called the single market, which I'm not going to suggest to Gisela this was a deliberate attempt to in any way mislead you. But you know what? The single market isn't about tariffs. Those are, the old ta you know, those are the taxes that are imposed on the things we trade on each other. The single market, invented, by the way, by Brits. Lord Cofield was the European commissioner who invented it, persuaded Jacques Delors to then persuade Margaret Thatcher. It was then Margaret Thatcher in a conservative government that introduced the single European Act, the biggest pooling of sovereignty ever entered into by any British government. Irony of ironies by the sort of Buddha seer of Euroscepticism. She did it. She did it. She made us the pro-Europeans that we, whether we like it or not, we are. What they all understood, what all of those British officials and governments understood then was that modern trade is not actually about taxes and tariffs. It's about all the fiddly little rules. The, I don't know, from the colorants for plastic ducks to phytosanitary standards for agricultural products to the norms and regulations on electronic goods. All of that those are the things which trip up and impede trade. And they said, well, instead of having, for example, 28 different definitions of chocolate, let's have one definition of chocolate, and then everyone can trade their chocolate effortlessly from one part of this great uh, community of 500 million consumers from end to end. That was the genius of the single market. It was a British invention. It is being emulated around the world, whether it's NAFTA in North America, Mercosur in Latin America, ASEAN in Southeast Asia, the Americans in the Pacific are trying to create their own uh, new uh, uh, market of sorts right now. The whole world is coalescing into their single markets of their own because they realize that it is better for trade, and trade is better for economic dynamism, and economic dynamism helps people in jobs, 
generates taxes which we can put into our hospitals and our schools, and I genuinely think that turning our back on the single market would not be only an act of enormous economic self-harm, it would actually be denying one of the great British achievements over the last half century. Thank you very much. Thank you. famous words in a rather different European debate, I have here a piece of paper. Um, I've been handed the vote, uh, the result of our first vote. I'll give you those in a minute. Very intriguing and interesting. But I'm going to put you, uh, Wilmore, on the spot there. This point about the economy, and the, the economy is so central in this debate. Hard question to answer, I know. Net, are we net gainers or net losers from being in the European Union? Um, an Economically. An impossible answer to, to give for certain. I mean, obviously, nobody knows for certain. Um, and if you try to put a precise number on it, then you don't stand a chance. Um, what we can say is what most economists seem to say, which is that most economists seem to be saying that there would be a financial cost to leaving, and there has been a financial benefit to being in. Um, that, as I say, is disputed by some economists, and how big that effect is, is up for argument. Uh, but there we go. So if you don't like an economic opinion, get yourself another economist. Uh, there's always one coming along. Um, here's, here's the result of the vote as you came in. Um, for Remain, 60% of this room was in favor. For Leave, 17, 17% were for Leave. And undecided, the crucial block that you two are going to be trying to win over tonight, 23%. So nearly one in four of you undecided, but the weight of the room is for staying in the European Union. Let's see if the arguments uh, sway people. So far, people have said often about this debate that it is like an internal dispute inside the Conservative Party. I think our two speakers uh, have shown that that's not true, a Labour voice against a Liberal Democrat with a very spirited argument. Gisela Stewart, let me give you just a couple of minutes or so to respond to the arguments you heard from Nick Clegg, and perhaps particularly this one that says so many of the Leavers' arguments seem to be complaining that the European Union isn't perfect. Well, what is? You work in a place that many people would think is not perfect, the House of Commons. Uh, is that an excuse or reason to leave? Well, do you want to... Uh, yeah, well, you say, you say no, where no, you are. Yeah, whenever you get up. But the beauty of this imperfect place where we work, both work, where they've got mice in the dining room and moths in the corridors, is that every five years they change the occupants if they don't think they've done a proper job. But the, the key thing I want to come back to, to, to Nick, because you made a really important point, and that was Scotland. You know, why, why is it perfectly compatible for me to be a great unionist when it comes to the United Kingdom and not be a great unionist when it comes to the European Union? The, the Brits, with the help of someone, a little no man called George I, uh, managed to develop an extraordinary concept of supranational identity. They have overcome the problems of, of the, the disadvantages of nationalism by creating the concept of Britishness. The British Isles and Northern Ireland is very much a demos, which has a democratic structure. My argument is the European Union of this size now actually does not have a demos, which allows for democratic decisions to be made. And to the single market, I would say, unless I'm wrong, those other single markets which are creating do not have free movement of labor with them as well. 
That is the big difference. It's a free movement of labor with the single market. So to me, it's a deeply democratic argument. And with that, if you've got a functioning liberal democracy, trade will flourish because that's what those governments do. Nicola, do you want to come back on that? No, I mean, look, uh, of course, uh, of course, Gisela's right to say that uh, the European Union and the United Kingdom are different in terms of the sense of loyalty and identification with it. I certainly to think that um, the European Union is far more of a... Certainly my experience of it was that it, it wasn't some great monolithic super-state imposing things on sort of hapless, law-abiding Brits while everybody u uniquely broke the law elsewhere. It wasn't like that. It was actually, my experience, it was basically just a permanent haggle between sovereign countries basically making lots of deals and compromises with each other. But they did so accountable to their own parliaments, accountable to their own electorates. But the reason they did it, and this is the point, this is where you and I, I think, disagree as a matter of first principle, is that I personally believe that your argument about control would, in the, in the real world, lead to less control. Because you'd have less control over forces which escape the, the, the remit of the nation-state. We could have endless, endless votes in the House of Commons thinking we're influencing the world, thinking we're shaping uh, great global events, uh, 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 events in, in other hemispheres, but we wouldn't really have the means to do it. We extend our influence over the world around us by working hand-in-glove with others. And I think most people intuitively kind of know in their everyday lives, never mind politics in the European Union, that there is a thing called safety and strength in numbers. And I think that is what lies at the heart of what this messy, imperfect arrangement the European Union is all about. What about, though, this fundamental, and it is a principal argument that Gisela Stewart made, and it's famously associated with Tony Benn, the questions he would put to people in power, what power have you got, who gave it to you, and how can I get rid of you? And people ask that question of the European Commission, say, yeah. and don't know the answer. How can, the, how can it be but democracy but if you can't get rid of them? But just... The European Commission does not have the right to impose laws on us. It has the right to propose a law which then elected ministers and elected MEPs decide upon. They don't have a right. It's, by the way, a much smaller bureaucracy than it's made out to be. It's about, no, about 33,000 uh, full-time officials. That's about half the size of HMRC, about less than a tenth of the size of Whitehall. So it isn't this great monstrous thing out of control. It can propose ideas, but if we don't like them and other governments don't like them, if other elected politicians don't like them, you can amend or reject them. And I, I just come back to the, to, to the central point. If you didn't have that arrangement, in a crowded continent such as ours, with so many things that confront us in common, you'd need to invent something to replace it where you can take decisions together rather than, rather than in a sense of bask in the illusion of sovereignty by taking them separately. You might take them separately, but you'd actually be weaker in influencing the events in the world around us. Very quick response on that, and then I'm going to our panel. Since 2010, the Parliament in Westminster hasn't even had debates on the council meetings. We don't talk about a whole lot of things, so, so it's not that we don't decide them, the accountability is taken away there. And if, we had, if, if, if David Cameron had come back with a deal which had recognized this, this kind of division between Euro and non-Euros, and had said, let's put in the ballot paper who the Commissioner is, let's have a whole kind of things which open it, but the Commission is like a polymer with memory. You try and bend it, and you just think you've got them to change their mind, you look away, and it's back where they were before. It's beyond reform. I want to pursue that later, but let's go to our, our panel. This point about sovereignty, and it, was one of the, it has been one of the defining questions of the whole debate 
I remember Michael Gove wrote that very long piece explaining why he was uh, joining uh, the Leave camp and said it was because this fundamental question of sovereignty, the, you, you couldn't be sovereign, uh, fully sovereign, the British people inside the European Union. So to you, Simon Bulmer, Professor of European Politics, do, you know, you've heard both arguments here, and you're going to be together collectively, studiedly neutral, but are we more or less sovereign by being in the European Union? I think this is a, um, a judgment call. There is no real science on this. You can take a legal position, but Damien had better explain that about legal sovereignty, parliamentary sovereignty, but it does depend on how you understand the world to be, whether it is a world that's complex, as has been put forward by Nick, or whether it's one where you want to have complete control in a more sort of isolated way. I don't think you can find a science to prove this one way or the other. It's about making a kind of judgment what sort of world it is that we, we live in. And that's really down to judgment rather than science. Thank you. And to, to you, Damien Chalmers, because... you a diplomatic response. Um, yeah, um, because European law is your field. Um, uh, tell us, uh, this thing is thrown around again about who's making the laws. Is it Westminster or is it uh, Brussels? All kinds of stats fly around about the percentage of laws that are generated there rather than here. Uh, can you cut through that fog for us a bit and just tell us where you know, legal authority resides? Well, if you ask where legal authority resides rather than the amount of laws, the first thing to say is that currently in the UK, EU law takes precedence over, over UK law. So in, those, in that sense, in a very formal sense, um, uh, Parliament's sovereignty is restricted. Michael Gove is right. And, and so how restricted is it? Uh, once again, it's difficult to come down with precise numbers because there's a lot of uh, confusion about what constitutes a law or a legal act, both in the EU and the UK. I would say it's significant, and in some ways the best way of looking at it is the studies that have been done elsewhere in Europe, because it's unlikely that they've all been lying. What they find is that if you just look at implementing pieces of legislation, it's about 15% of national law is EU. When you include... One five, 15%. 15, one five, yes, a sixth, more or less. Once you look at regulations, which don't have to be implemented into national law, it moves to about a third to 38%. Now, this has been contested to, to some extent by uh, uh, the Leave side, but these figures seem reasonably reliable to me. So, Nick, like, that's, that's a big number. Even if it is just at the 15% number, you heard Damien Chalmers there saying, it is true that European law is, in effect, paramount over the laws passed in the House of Commons. That's a big thing and surely yeah, but a I think fundamental should, I think, democratic problem. Sure. No, listen, I think we've got to be... I, I, I think these sort of rival caricatures, and in the intimacy of this room, Gisela and I can be much more subtle and high-minded in our arguments. We've just got to be open with people. It is a trade-off. It is a trade-off. We agree to share things with other countries because it is our judgment that it enables, it empowers us to do things we couldn't do on our own. That's the trade-off. So, of course, in a single market, there's no point having a single market if everyone can make up the rules themselves, otherwise the whole thing would fall apart. So the, 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 the thing that was enshrined by Margaret Thatcher in the Single European Act was that if you're going to create this huge borderless marketplace of 500 million consumers, you've got to have some rules that there are incumbents on everybody, otherwise the whole thing will fall to bits. That is a trade-off. So you accept a certain constraint that you are in a shared endeavor which has common rules, which constrain you, but what you get for that is, in our case, direct unhindered access to the world's largest 
borderless marketplace. Now, the, the, if, you, if you don't like that, and to be fair, the Brexit campaign have, I think, come clean now and said, we, don't like, we, we dislike it so much, we actually want to tear up Margaret Thatcher's single European Act. We don't want to have anything to do with the single market either. I think that is a devastatingly self-harming thing to do economically, and I wouldn't want it on my conscience to see the lower taxes, lower investment, higher unemployment, which would ensue. It's at least consistent. But I do think we just need to be open about the fact that it is a trade -off. So we, we, the, the figures are slightly disputed, but you know, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, uh, the, the, uh, the OBR and others have estimated the net the net weekly money that we provide to the European Union is 110 million, so actually less than a third of what is cited on Giesler and Boris's bus. Now, we, so that is 110 million pounds. We must hide that. That it goes to the European Union. But we get many, many more times back that value because of the jobs and the economic growth that is created by being part of this great thing. It is a trade-off, and I don't think anyone should somehow obscure that fact. The judgment is, do you think that trade-off is worthwhile or not? I do. So we've challenged a few things that Nick Clegg was saying. I'm going to call on you, Chris Pickerton. You've written this guide for citizens. Is there something in the argument, the vote leave arguments, that you would like to perhaps pick up on or respond to that we heard from Gisela Stewart? I think um, we have to think about things in context. I think both of you, um, uh, I would have a comment, which is when we talk about the single market, um, either it's good or it's bad. Now, economists are very good at saying it's a bit of this or it's a bit of that. The key point about the single market is not everyone's a winner um, and not everyone's a loser. Um, now, I think Nick Clegg, you gave a very strong defense about the advantages of the single market, 500 million consumers, getting rid of all of these fiddly little rules. Um, I think we have to have some perspective on this. Not everybody gains in the same way. Some people lose, some people do gain. Um, there's a famous quote by the political economist Adam Smith where he said that whenever business people get together, what they want to do is the following. They want to expand the market in order to narrow the competition. Um, now, the single market, I think, has done many things. It's created, for us as British consumers, a pretty rich set of things that we can buy when we go to the supermarket. You know, it's a very cosmopolitan experience, I think, in ways that I'm guessing it wasn't in the past. But on the other hand, it has entrenched corporate power in many, in, in many ways. So it's a double-sided um, phenomenon. And so I don't think it's quite right to say it's all negative, but it's also certainly not right to say it's all, it's all, it's all positive. I would add one other thing, which is the devil is in the detail. Okay? Now, when we talk about how European laws are made, um, it's quite true that the Commission has the authority to propose legislation. Um, and it's been delegated that authority. But where does it get its ideas from? Where does the Commission get its ideas from? The Commission will generally not propose something which it thinks member states are going to hate. The Commission isn't trying to lose a popularity contest. The Commission doesn't want to make its life difficult for itself. So at any one time in Brussels, there are lots of things that are circulating which are called non-papers. Now, non-papers are ideas that are being proposed the Commission wants to get feedback from member states about whether they think this is going to fly or whether it's going to be ignored. The Commission will generally propose things that it thinks has some political traction. It's not there just to, 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 to be useless. It wants to propose things that there might be some support for. Member states then respond, um, and if it's something that they don't like, they will simply ignore it. 
the five presidents report is something that a lot of um, uh, have people have talked about. Probably the most striking thing about the five presidents report is how many presidents there are. Um, <laughs> that was ignored by member states because it wasn't popular. Uh, so there's a real balance there. I think it is quite characteristic of the EU that they have something called a non-paper. <laughs> written on paper um, but is but we have got a good flavor there of some of the arguments you mentioned uh, immigration I think that's going to be a big part of the debate as we open up and I know we haven't picked up on it just yet um, I think now is the moment to open up so there are people uh, around who have microphones with them uh, let's see a few hands go up if somebody would like to respond to any of the arguments that have been made here there's a couple of hands there if uh, so I'm hoping people with paddles a little signs there could you pass the microphone to the woman there, just three or so along, and we'll go to her first. And then, have you got a microphone there ready with someone? And then we should have somebody up here. I don't want to discriminate against people who are in the heavenly realm up there all the way. Uh, if we can send, I think you have to come down to the microphone that's there. So if you just come down those stairs, there's a microphone there. There we are, make sure you don't trip and fall because that is quite a height. And we will, while you're getting down to that microphone, we'll hear from our first contributor here, yeah. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. We continually discuss immigrants in the context of them being another and as though we could never be them ourselves. But many British citizens want to and choose to and choose to emigrate themselves. Won't this be far more difficult for us if we do choose to leave the EU? Um, I'm on a gap here at the minute and I've spent some time living in Germany, which was very easy for me to do and a very useful and informative time. I've had a good education, but it provided me with things that that couldn't do. And I think that it would be wrong to deny our own citizens that opportunity. Thank you. Um, where's number, question number two? Yep. Uh, Mr. Chairman, when uh, there was roughly economic parity between the member states of the economic union, um, the principle, the concept of freedom of movement generally worked. Now that we have so many member states with huge divergences in their economic e economies, it is inevitable that a country such as the United Kingdom becomes a magnet for immigration and that it is impossible, therefore, to plan for either our environment in terms of housing development 
our national health service, yeah. or schools. And that in itself, to my mind, is a defining reason for leaving. Thank you. Very clear. Um, <laughs> as I suspected, immigration is going to be a big theme. And let's hear from the woman up here. Yeah. Gisela Stewart delivers quite a damning indictment of the European Commission, but she sets the bar quite high for what is essentially a civil service. It works alongside what is also essentially an EU government, the European Council, which is elected just as our government is, and it also works alongside members of the European Parliament who are elected just as our MPs are elected. In fact, thinking about it, it could be argued that the EU is even more democratic than the UK because it doesn't have an unelected House of Lords. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Nobody up here is a member of the House of Lords yet, um, but, uh, we've, but the point is well taken. Let's go uh, into this immigration question because uh, both of you have asked it. So let's put this um, to you first, Kiesel Stewart. Question is said, Often we talk about immigrants if there are other people coming here, but actually there's lots of British people who enjoy the right to have freedom of movement elsewhere and go and work elsewhere. Uh, you know, what if we end up denying British people that right by coming out of the European Union? Well, they have all travelled before 1973. You know, this is not the end of travel. Uh, you know, I, when, when, when I arrived here as an immigrant, uh, I had to register with the police. Uh, I had to have a job. Uh, it took me five years before I got uh, permission to permanent leave. Uh, I had to show. There, there, there were conditions. What changed was Maastricht's introduction of European citizenship, which suddenly gave 500 million people that kind of flow. And I'll tell you one thing, which as a, as, as a Labour politician, I find deeply, deeply troubling. If one country can not train its own youngsters and buy its skills shortages, out of taking other people's young people, then I think I have a problem. I have a problem if whole generation of young people in Greece, Spain, Italy, and Portugal, and during the period in Ireland, had to leave their own countries, not because they wanted to take a gap year, but because it was the only way they could get a job. So I think there has to be a measure of conditions in which you travel, People have travelled before, and they will go on travelling. Yeah, it's you not know. about travelling. It's about actually having but, the right but, to work elsewhere. Oh, the, but the question was... The question was saying she wants to have that right. She's used it a bit. She wants to have it going forward in the rest of her life, and vote leave would deny her that possibility. No, no if, she, if, if she's got a job, whatever the conditions are. But I'm just saying that who, who makes those rules have to be quite clear, and they require the consent of the people so that you can manage the system. So let's put the other question, which, d which came from the other side of the argument to you, uh, Nick Clegg, which is the idea that freedom of movement is wonderful if you're talking about movement between economically comparable countries. When there was parity, fine. And that's what the founders of the European project originally imagined. Mm. Now that there is this huge gap between, say, Romania yeah. and here, it's just not sustainable. Yeah, I, I, look, I think it's just undeniable that if your economy grows faster at any point than neighbouring economies and people can move around... Then, then people will move to where the jobs and opportunities are. I, I, there's no point denying that. The question, again, is a judgment on whether you think, on balance, it is a good or a bad thing. I think it's a, you know, as the, as the lady said earlier, it is a two-way street. There are about one, latest estimates are about 1.2 million Brits living, working, studying, or retired abroad. It is, I'm afraid, fanciful, this idea uh, that we could somehow 
put up a sort of go-home sign on the cliffs of Dover. Well, you could uh, have those go-home vans that happened well, in the government yeah. you yes. were in. Yeah, well, I stopped that. But anyway, um, uh, and, then, and then expect, what, Spanish taxpayers to continue to pick up the bill for the many you know, British retirees who are enjoying uh, their latter years in the sun in Spain? It is a two-way street. It is a two-way street. We also, let's be clear, in the same way that it is important to be candid about, for, 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 for Remain campaigners like me, that yes, of course, particularly if your economy is doing better than others, you will attract people to come and find opportunities here. I think it's incumbent on uh, the Brexit campaign to acknowledge that actually people coming here have in many, many ways contributed to our country. The Portuguese nurses, the Danish doctors, the German engineers, they do actually pay their taxes. And whilst, whilst Gisela... Whilst Gisela is of course right, of course right, yes, there are real pressures which we, which we have to deal with. It's totally right, legitimate and important to confront them. This sort of caricature, which I hear in the debate, that somehow, in effect, implying that all immigration is bad, no, I never is a denial of our history, it's a denial of reality, and I don't actually think it's in line with very fine, open British traditions that we've had for centuries. I, I, no, I know you didn't look, say but you know no, what I mean. No, but yeah, but, so, so, but if I didn't say it, then don't say that this is the argument. The, the key thing about that movement is that with it come responsibilities and you expect your government to be able to manage that. That doesn't mean you're setting one community against another, but you do say they, they have to be rules which have to be complied with. That's the problem at the moment. Let's pick up the third question which came, which came from up there, which was about the institutions, not as undemocratic as they're led, made out to be. In fact, you could say with direct election for MEPs and for the European Council, uh, more democratic, just on the political institutions, uh, Simon Bulmer. Well, it's certainly true that uh, the member governments uh, have their voice in the Council of Ministers, in the European Council, and in recent times, in the headline decisions, it's been moving more towards trying to get consensus. That's different on the day-to-day -day, uh, policy areas. They're not directly elected. They're indirectly elected through national parliaments. European Parliament, of course, is another channel uh, of control. The, the difficulty with all this is popular feeling of remoteness from the institutions and the feeling that there is no European people this is where the difficulty is, and I think it's fair to say that with enlargement to 28 states, that distance has enlarged. But these channels for engagement in legislation, they do, in, do exist. Chris Pickerton, Gisela Stewart did say this, the lack of a demos, the sense of a European people, and, pe and people, human beings need that to feel some kind of political connection. You can vote for your local council, you can vote in a UK-wide election because we feel we're members of that society, and people somehow perhaps don't feel it about Europe. That's absolutely right, um, but I think there are some explanations for that. Um, language is an, is an important factor. Um, it's true that in the last economic crisis, some of the national stereotypes that were being thrown around suggested that we lived in the 1950s. Um, but let me just throw a word out there, which is maybe one that people don't know, trilogues. Say the word again. Trilogues. <laughs> trilogues? This, this, We've had non-papers and now we're getting trilogues. What are these? So trilogues are the way that um, the EU makes a lot of its, uh, of its laws. Um, because the European Parliament has powers to co-decide with the European Council, 
if there wasn't these trilogues, this would take a very long time. Trilogues are essentially meetings of three representatives of institutions, the Commission, the Council, and the European Parliament, and they come to a decision about a piece of legislation before any sort of vote or any sort of plenary debate within the European Parliament. Now, these trilogues, I'm afraid, are private affairs, um, and the vast majority of EU law um, in the last few years has come out of these trilogues. So the idea that the European Parliament is a place for open deliberation about law is not really true. It really takes place in trilogues. So really, not really, thank you. Really quick on that. Why aren't those in public? They should be, shouldn't they? Yeah, they should. They should. But can I just... Look, I, honestly, I think some of this... I so strongly agree with the lady up there who said the House of Lords. It's a democratic outrage that it's not elected, and uh, I spectacularly failed, amongst other things, to change it. But anyway... Um, <laughs> Better luck for the next uh, reform that comes along. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, the point I want to make is I think some of this talk about institutions, who votes and who meets, is a surrogate, in my view, for something a bit deeper, which is that I think there is an... And I concede this, definitely, to the Brexit. I think there is an emotional commitment to European integration in other countries, which, because of our history, we have never had. If you, my mum's Dutch. If you're Dutch or German or Italian or French, there's a visceral commitment, basically, of... The European integration represents peace over war. My wife is Spanish. For the Spaniards, the Greeks, the Portuguese, it's, it's democracy over fascism and, and being at the top table. For us, frankly, in the 1970s, we sort of shuffled into the European community with a slightly sort of defeatist shrug of our shoulders. Well, we're not the empire anymore, but can't beat them. We might as well join them. That's, and you can see the debate here. It's, it's a, we've always had a slightly more lightly held, loosely held conviction about our European identity. And I do think that sets us apart. But I don't think that's a sufficient reason to say we should pull the whole thing down and quit. That's the only... You know, of course there are differences. At which point, let me ask a slightly personal question to you, Gisela, because I have a political memory that goes long, back long enough to 1997 when you arrived, I think the first ever German-born Member of Parliament, held up as an example that you embodied somehow the new Europeanism of Blairite New Labour, because look, we've even got this German MEP, MP, and yet here you are now leading Vote Leave. Just can, can you give us some explanation of how you went from there to where you are now? She's <laughs> gone. Just to add to this, I also represent Neville Chamberlain's old constituency, and I was born near Munich, so, you know... Uh, You've got a lot going on. I used to have these, these historic conversations with Neville saying in 1997 your seat will be represented by a woman, a socialist, one born near Munich. But don't panic. It's all right. It's all right. It's all democratic. Uh, it, it, it's quite clear. What happened was the Convention on the Future of Europe, 15 months in the company of the charming Giscard d'Estaing. Because uh, you were Britain's delegate or one of I, Britain's delegates. I was, I, I was part of the drafting body of a group of 13. And I genuinely thought there was an attempt to reform it, bring it closer to the people, make it more democratically accountable. And I really wanted to make this work. So if you ever do any press searches, there's a real clear cut from about the Fabian pamphlet in 2003, where I just say, this thing has no intention of reforming, it's beyond the capability of reforming, and something needs to happen. So there was a very clear moment uh, of epiphany, I'm afraid. So you were a pro-European mugged by reality? Yeah. And, and Giscard d'Estaing was, was, the, the, was yep. the culprit. Really interesting. <laughs> Let, let's um, take more questions. I can see a couple of gentlemen who are waiting patiently. I'm quite keen to have a bit more of a gender balance than we've got up here from all of Thank you. you. So if there are some women there, who there we are, there's number one. There's, we'll go to you first. Let's see if there is another hand going up. We've got a lady there. If we can get a microphone to her and a couple here. So we're going to give it. And turning back, because we haven't been preaching to the choir, but we can see that the choir is there. Um, I don't know if there's a microphone where you are. Um, 
that may be a challenge. You may have to come down here. But anyway, let's go to the person who's already ready with the microphone. And if, you would, if you're able to stand, it'd be easier for all of us if you could stand, because then we can see where you are. Thank you. Good evening, Joanna George. Um, at the moment, I am wanting to stay in. Um, but I, I hear very loud and clearly that this is really a judgment call. Um, I think we all probably heard the word recession this morning in the papers, and that probably puts the fear of God into us all. I would just like you to put some more facts onto this. So the process, if we were in a situation where we were leaving, what would that process be? How long would it take? And what would the actual economic effect of it be? Ter Could the word recession actually be used? Terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Really helpful. I've got someone in mind for that one. Uh, where was the other microphone? There was somebody ready... Uh, yes, you, up there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have a question for Gisela. Um, I should preface it by saying that I am Swiss, and uh, I also have a couple of questions for, for Mr. Clegg. Just uh, ask this one, I think, just to spread regarding it around. Yeah. The, <laughs> regarding the definition of chocolate, uh, but in terms of uh, Brexit, um, oh, when I speak to my British friends about, about Brexit, they often say, oh, well, you're, you're Swiss. That's the ideal model, um, but my response would, to that would be that we, we pay a very high price for our uh, economic access to the to the European market, and that is uh, most of our laws. And that's something for the fact checker, perhaps. But most of our laws are, are in fact made uh, in Brussels, and we don't get any say in any of them. So I, I, I'd be very curious as to uh, Gisela's response to that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, where was the next person? Gentleman up there, microphone number six. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my name is Rob Pearson. I do very much agree with Nick Clegg's view that this is a judgment call, a sort of gut feel. But Nick did raise the question of the economy and that uh, the majority of economists do feel this will have an adverse effect on our economy. In Gisela's uh, uh, statements, she, didn't, she seemed to rather skip over this and I just wonder whether she actually believes it is going to be business as usual. And I'd also like to ask, what is going to happen to the thousands of businesses in this country that have faithfully followed the EU rules over the last, over the last many years? Are they suddenly going to be confronted with a whole set of new rules? Thank you. Um, I can see people were keen to... Oh, you've got a handheld microphone. We'll take an extra one over here. Yeah. Hello. Um, if the European Union was a large listed company on one of the big European bourses, um, it would have a sales line of somewhere between half a trillion, a trillion euro a year. And um, at that sort of magnitude, the fact the auditors haven't been able to sign the accounts for the last 14 odd years would immediately ask the question as to, well, I think most of the press would talk about corruption. The CEO would be go, the CFO would go and probably the business would get broken up eventually. So why do we not talk about that with respect to the European Union? Thank you. Very, very good. So um, I'm not, that's all we're going to take for now. We'll see if we can get another round in. I know that lots of you are waiting. Young person there. Okay, because so young, I'm going to be biased and allow the young questioner. Can't, can't, I'm your, I'm, I've got a heart that's melting. Let's, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. I am a half Turkish um, boy, and I just like to ask the. I just like to ask the exit, those who vote for Brexit. Do you do you feel comfortable with your postal, which is a European passport with the Turkish flag all over it, or do you feel uncomfortable about its racial undertones? Thank you very much indeed. 
I'll, I'll take the question back. Thank you. Why, why, why do we begin with that? So the, the, the questionnaire asked about the poster that Vote Leave are using, which shows a with a passport and sort of door open that has the Turkish flag all over it. Do you feel comfortable with that poster, he was saying, or do you worry about its racial uh, overtones or undertones? And, and the, um, the graphic showed a whole series of sort of footprints, I think, as if to say a lot of people, perhaps with slightly dirty feet, are going to be coming in. That was, that's what I took away from it. Coming in to the United Kingdom. That may be just me. But, um, but that, that, anyway, Turkish, uh, sort of particularly this message that's been saying we're going to have, you know, open the floodgates to Turkey. Questioner asks, he says he's half Turkish. Do you worry, as he obviously does, about the sort of racial uh, undertones of that? Gisela Stewart. Look, whenever I get introduced as the German-born British MP, I could turn around and say, how, how dare you be so racist and mention my place of birth? I mean, I don't think there's anything racist in pointing out the fact that there are five member states uh, applying for it. There's nothing racist about the fact that uh, David Cameron only nine weeks ago actually signed up to saying we would accelerate uh, the process of Turkish membership. The fact that we're paying, what, 19 billion on accelerating that process. That, that is a, a factual numbers game. And that's why I said earlier when I talked about immigration, there's some, some things which we kind of feel we shouldn't talk about. You say there's five countries. Don't you think it's a little bit of a dog whistle, this emphasis on Turkey? Well, it is the biggest of those five, isn't it? And, and given, given that we're currently striking a deal to, to, do, to, to outsource our EU external borders to the Turkish government in exchange for enormous sums of money without demanding the kind of democratic changes, given the negotiations about visa-free access, should I not say that? It is happening. Why should I not say that? Talking things we should say, I realize I should have said... Sorry, there we are. Now is the time, amazingly, time has galloped forward for us to start voting. Um, I know you've hardly made up your minds yet because you've all come in here so open-minded, but the um, ballot boxes will be going round now for you to vote. Remember, the method uh, for voting is if you want to vote remain, put the remain one in, leave, leave. Uh, and if you are uh, undecided, oh, I think maybe you've got an undecided slip. Anyway, let's try and not talk while we vote. Um, it's a secret and silent ballot. Let's keep the volume down because we're going to continue with the discussion while these ballots go round. Um, I want to put to you uh, the question, and one of the questioners asked this thing about the process. Let's keep it quiet if we can. The process of leaving, the process of leaving, and whether there'll be an economic effect just from the process of leaving. And I thought that would be one for you, Damien Chalmers. Um, yes, just briefly before I ask that, just as a question of point of information, uh, the biggest study on the impact of EU law in Switzerland, which looked at all acts uh, done by the Swiss Parliament between 1990 and 2010, found that 32% involved uh, in some way the implementation of EU law. Of that 32%, only 9%, not 9% of the 32, 9% of the whole was implementing agreements with the EU. And this is Switzerland, which is outside the European Union, one European Union, one third of its laws coming from the European Union. The Swiss okay. Parliament, it's a very decentralised We're, we're going to come now, back on to Switzerland. We'll do Switzerland, but do this thing about process. the process of leaving. I'm not going to say whether it's going to cause a recession or not. Um, what has to um, take place is David Cameron has to, or whoever is in charge, has to make a decision whether to formally start the process of leaving the European Union. David Cameron has said he will do that. 
uh, almost immediately. The leaves say that is not necessary, and legally it is not necessary. Once he starts that process, uh, he has two years to, or the, Br the British government has two years to reach an agreement, or there's a sort of a disorderly exit, unless all states agree to continue it, which will be quite hard. There is a problem with this two-year period, A, because it's quite short, and B, as the time goes on, the UK's negotiating position gets weaker, as it's likely to suffer more from a disorderly exit than anyone else. This is why Leave, as I understand it, want an informal period of negotiations before you formally trigger this exit process. Uh, Gisela can talk more to this, but my understanding is that Leave wants it all wrapped up by the next general election. On their website, they talk of some sort of deal by 2020. Okay. Um, do you want to quickly say something on that? No, it's just, just, I mean, it's just you harumphed loudly. The idea that all the trade agreements which we're part of with endless countries around the world, scores and scores and scores of them, could all be stitched back together again uh, by 2020. I mean, the problem, the problem, the lady, where is she, that you asked about, the, uh, I don't know, because I, I can't get a clear answer from anyone on the Brexit camp what they think will happen on the 24th of June. Is, do they think we should be like Canada? Do they think we should be like Norway? Do they think we should be like Iceland? Do they should be like Albania, Switzerland. apparently? Switzerland. By the way, the, all the ones that are most often cited, Norway, Iceland, Switzerland, have higher net immigration per head than we do. So it's a nonsense, this idea that you sort of say no to the European Union and suddenly immigration floats away like the morning mist. Suddenly all those, all those uh, problems disappear. They can't agree amongst themselves. And I genuinely think when it's they, not us, when it's they who are asking us to take such a big leap of faith as a country, the least they could do, the least they could do is agree amongst themselves and then tell us what they think will happen on the 24th of June. And I say it with frustration because it's such a momentous step. It's such a huge a leap in the dark. You would have thought they'd worked out what on earth might actually happen. Well, since Gisela's here, let, let's give you a chance to directly say... June 24th, what happens? Which of those models are we going to be like? No, no just, just before that. David, David Cameron promised the referendum because he thought that he would be in coalition with you again and therefore wouldn't have to deliver it. So he suddenly finds himself calling a referendum he didn't really want. <laughs> he, he thought he would save the Tory party, which he clearly isn't. And even as recently as Christmas, he said, of course we'd be perfectly right outside. We are big in a confident country. We are strong. He sends out a leaflet at the cost of 9.3 million to every one of your households where we didn't forecast World War III, pestilence, the murder of the firstborn and the locust, which clearly is what's happening now. So what I'm saying is you have a prime minister who at choice, as, as little as six months ago, thought it would be perfectly right to be in or out. He then calls this referendum at the moment and there's a mechanism which will give him a mandate to deal with that. And as to what the model is, I turn this around and say, how big do you have to be to have a deal which neither Albania, Switzerland, Norway, and with all respect to all these countries have? If you're the fifth largest economy, you've got the sixth largest uh, manufacturing sector in the world, you've got the fifth largest defense budget, you know what, Nick, we're going to end up with a decent deal and it won't be like any of the others before. Hold on. What about... President Obama's remark that we'll be at the back of the queue and it will take a long, long time. Uh, I'd say two things to that. One is, next time the Americans want to go to war, uh, 
And that's their deal of friendship, of saying, if you don't do as we want, you know, you're at the back of the queue. And quite frankly, if it comes to TTIP, the transatlantic trade agreement, the way it's going to ruin the NHS, when it comes to TTIP, President Obama, I'm very happy to be at the back of that queue. All right, let's um, quickly go through some of the other points that were made. I, I don't want these questions to be uh, ignored. This one about the adverse effect. Um, oh, no, let's you can put it to you. This business about the European Commission, if it was a company, by now it would have been shut down and everyone would, in it would have been sacked. No audits for donkey's years. No, 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 What's not, the that's simply not true. The accounts have been signed off the last several it's just, no, it's just simply not true to say they haven't been signed off. I think Look, this calls for Will, the Truth Squad. <laughs> You've been sitting there patiently. Well, can truth, I before, hold on, well, let's, well, let's hear the Truth Squad. Have they been audited or not? Do you want to finish your point yes, first? Yes, I want to finish. No, no, no. no can, I I want to okay, well, can I just finish the point about, about the size of the European Union? We, we, our contribution to the European Union budget is about 0.65% of our national wealth. It's about 1.5% of the over £700 billion a year that, that George Osborne spends on our behalf. It is a minuscule, minuscule budget compared to our own budgets. And the, and the errors and frauds which happen in all pub, public budgets are almost always to do with local authorities in, in member states, not the sort of fault of some faceless bureaucrat in Brussels. And guess what? We have fault, we have errors, we have unsigned off accounts in our own government system as well. But we don't then say in response to it that we're going to pull the whole thing down. Yes, let's sort it out. Let's make sure that every single penny of, of taxpayers' money, both here and in the European Union, is well spent. But I think, you know, stones and glass houses sometimes springs to mind when I hear this sort of assumption that all money is well spent here and it's all spun, spent badly over there. It's simply not the case. OK, and then we, you've Jonathan. slightly dealt with the Switzerland question because you said we'll be our own model. We don't have to copy uh, others. But what about this point? Somebody said over there, the questioner, that you had slightly skipped over the question of the economic impact. And do you believe there will be uh, uh, potentially detrimental effect from leaving, or do you believe, the questioner asked, it'll be business as usual? So just deal with that, and then we'll take one more round and close it. Well, markets are very volatile creatures. They respond to mood music, and quite frankly, the way both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have successfully talked down this country over the last few weeks, I don't think that has been very helpful. Uh, you know, 24th of June, the, the government will have a mandate to invoke or not invoke an article, uh, the markets will respond. General elections create a period of uncertainty, and nobody would say it isn't the democratic price worth paying. But ultimately, trade happens because you've got ideas, you've got energy. Yes, of course you know. So can I just, just challenge that? Because I, unlike many people, I, as I meant years before I went into politics, I actually worked as a trade negotiator. Of course, innovation, good products, good services are necessary, but you have to have access. If people tax things very high, if they put in regulations which stop your product or your service from going in, it can be as innovative as you like. You're not going to be able to trade it. It's just simply not true to say it's only because of animal spirits in the private sector which determines trade. You have to also make sure that people lift the, or open the gates to your products and your services, and that is only done through hard-nosed negotiating between trade negotiations. I was a little nobody, sort of just making the tea and the coffee, for, EU, for an EU trade negotiating team many years ago, which was uh, negotiating with Chinese trade negotiators on the European terms of China's accession in the WTO. 
The only reason they listened, not necessarily to me, but to the people I was working with, was because we represented the clout of one of the world's largest trade blocks. The idea that those hard-nosed trade negotiators from Beijing would give us equal or similar access to their markets for a, for a, for a trading block, the United Kingdom, which is far, far, far smaller than the EU, is fanciful. Lord Digby Jones, who was a <laughs> Labour minister... Who, who did trade negotiations more recently than you did, who actually did the negotiations himself, said this Sunday that A, he didn't think he would cost us a single job, and B, he said if you t do trade negotiations where the tariff base you start with is zero, because currently within the single market it's zero, he said it is in no one's interest to suddenly start introducing tariffs. It's not in the interest of you know, Italian shoes to introduce one or, or, or British cars. Let, let me give you an example. It, so, so Digby Jones thinks it'd be zero, and it'll be not costing jobs. Okay, let's just really short word from you, Will Moy. We're into our closing minutes. Will. Um, just on that point about the auditors, the thing about the auditors is they get asked two different questions. One is, um, are they actually preparing the accounts to international standards? Are they presenting a true and fair view of the finances? And the other question is, is all the money being spent properly in uh, line with the rules and regulations? They have actually signed off the true and fair view question most of the time since 1994. Um, but last year, 2014, they said clean opinion on the reliability, but they also said 4.4% of the spending didn't follow the rules. Okay, we're, gonna, we're into our closing minutes. I'm going to take a very quick round of contributions from here. Then we're going to hear closing remarks from our speakers, and that will be it. So why don't we get the microphone to the gentleman who's patiently got his hand up, and, and then we'll pass it to the man behind him, I recognise. Yes. Stand up if you can, if you're able. Hello, a very quick question. I just wondered if there's anybody at all on the stage who believes that Jeremy Corbyn believes that we should <laughs> remain in the European Union. Thank you. And behind you is the Sunday Times columnist Dominic Lawson. Could you stand up and we can see you as you ask your question? Yes, uh, I just want to say the, the, the single market is described as if it's something you're either in or out. It's just regulations. That's all it's regulations. An important point, and I'd like to be to answer this, is since the inauguration of the single market, America, Canada, Australia, which are mature economies, have seen their exports into the EU grow by a greater proportion than ours have. Now, that's just a fact, and the point is, therefore, they, they obey the regulations, but they don't have no, they don't. the European Court of Justice supervening over their form of justice, they do not have freedom of movement. Isn't that a pretty good deal? Thank you. Um, I think we have somebody here. That's it. Yeah. I was actually struck by the narrowness of some of the debate uh, this evening because, from my judgment, the biggest accomplishment of the EU has been that it has been the single most successful example that we have historically of the 20th century of state building, peace building, and post-war reconstruction. And frankly, I would, have, I would rather have listened to Obama than George W. Bush or Donald Trump. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We, let's see if there's anybody up there. Do you have somebody there with you? Yes, yeah. It seems to me like a lot of the debate is quite intractable, sorry, intractable because there are a lot of competing perspectives. Nick Clegg's spoken about foregrounding economic reasons, Gisela seems to prioritise uh, democracy, and we've also heard about why a single market might uh, entrench corporations, which was like a different take on the economic area. 
And I don't feel like there's been much analysis of why one perspective might be better than another. I was wondering if someone might comment on why um, democracy here is more important than the economics or sovereignty might be the more important thing. And I was hoping someone might add some of the context okay. that some of these academics have mentioned. Thank you. We've, we're so short on time. I'm going to ask the remaining people. I am going to try and squeeze you in, but really brief if you can. And if you can stand up. I know that somebody's there, but I can't see them because they're not standing up. There we are. German colleague, I think. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, Giza, I was born in Germany as well. I've spent most of my adult life in Britain. I've seen it grow and develop from being a relevant, irrelevant country in the 70s, sick man on the Thames, to being one of the most attractive countries in Europe. In fact, Britain is uniquely attractive to millions of people who want to come here. No other country in Europe suffers, shall I say, the popularity as a country to immigrate to than Britain does. So, while it's true that Nick Clegg said that some of these skilled workers have filled jobs, vacancies that the natives would not have filled, that is absolutely beyond question. The problem is the millions of others who are not skilled who come here, and is it not true that there must be a right to a sovereign state to introduce something like an Australian quota system to make sure that you're not swamped by people uh, because of your own popularity, of which you are the victim, shall I say, and, and something has to be done about it. Thank you. I'm only going to be able to get two more in. We're going to hear... Thank you. People always do this. All the questions come always right at the end when we're running out of time. It's a shame. Hi. Yeah. This is for Nick Clegg. Um, you've repeated this rhetoric of you don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater just because it isn't perfect. And you've repeated the idea that you can have a look at it and try and fix it. But is that actually an option for us? Uh, we've already heard on the opposing side that reform really isn't possible. So is that actually a valid argument? Okay, thank you. This is going to be the last one. There's two of you there, so you're going to have to divide the time between you. Really short, please. Yeah. Nick Clegg uh, has been telling us that we, are, we have a market of 500 million. If those 500 million, half of them, are permanently in debt and can't buy from us, uh, is, that a, is that the basis for a really successful uh, market? Thank you. And the lady next to you? Hi. If Britain does leave, what would happen to um, the skilled immigrants who are living here today, who bring math, science, technology skills, and innovation? And do you think in the next one or two years that we would have to come up with the new laws and regulations, those people wouldn't be put off and leave for other more open European cities? Are you asking this with some personal interest? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Good. Thank you. Um, the results of the vote will be imminent. Before we hear them, we're just going to... I'm sorry if people have still got their hands up. We have to conclude. We're going to have closing arguments, as it were, from you, Nick Clegg, first. It would be wonderful if you stand up and perhaps just deal with some of the points that you've heard right. raised as you conclude. It's just we're so out of time. Um, but uh, see, you can grab hold of any one of those that you want to Well, address. let me just first, since Dominic Lawson asked you, because it's a very specific question, you're right on one count, you're completely wrong on other. The US and Canada does not have access to the single market. Canadian financial services do not have access to the financial services single market, so that is simply incorrect. Where you're correct is the single market, you're right, is not actually about tariffs and taxes, it's about rules, as I said earlier. So here's the question, who makes the rules? Is it us, or do we abide by those rules and have no control over them? Which is what happens if you are in Switzerland or Norway. You know what they call it in Norway, Dominic? They call it fax democracy. They have to ab abide by the rules, try 
take the, 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 the facts from Brussels, telling them which rules they have to abide by, translate them into Norwegian uh, uh, law themselves with no say over them whatsoever. A catastrophic loss of sovereignty. I want to finally finish by the young man who said, if, uh, said up at the top there, he said, which of these competing claims is the most important? I have to say, ending on a slightly, not mawkish note, I hope, but certainly a very sort of paternal one. I, I have three children. They're 12, 14, remember the ages, 14, <laughs> 12, and 7. Two adorable, three little adorable little boys. <laughs> so, thank God Miriam's not here. I would get a major bollocking. But anyway, um, and I do, and I suspect many of you are the same. I do actually ask myself, I'm in my 50th year now, and I think to myself, okay, this is lots and lots of competing claims. I have very strong views on this. But I, I think, like most people, I think, what is the best thing for the next generation? What, in my judgment, is the best thing for uh, uh, our children and our grandchildren? I don't think the older generation, if I could put it like this, has a right to snatch away the opportunities which we enjoy ourselves from the next generation. Why should we impose our views on the next generation? And by all accounts, by all accounts, by all accounts, younger people generally, in overwhelming numbers, want to stay. It is their future. Let them have them. Let them have the future that they want. Thank you. And closing remarks from Gisela Stewart. 23rd of June, there is one thing which is not on the ballot paper, and that is the status quo. Because if you vote leave, you will take control of a whole range of decision-making. If you vote remain, you will be part of a unit that will have to continue to act in the interest of the majority, which are Eurozone countries, and their deeper integration will require the, the setting up of institutions which will act in their interest. Out of the 28 current member states, only two of them have an opt-out out of the Euro. It's us and Denmark. The second thing is, the question of the future came about. Post-World War II, there was a deal it was NATO would provide the defense capability, the common market, which is what the roots of these were, were supposed to provide economic stability. That together was supposed to guarantee a peaceful and prosperous Europe. NATO is being weakened, but the economic unit is not doing its job. We think, we've, because it's just not on television anymore, that the, the, the refugee crisis has been sorted, that Greece is sorted, that the economic instability in the Eurozone is sorted. Far from it. And the choice of us leaving is that as we are not going to be part of the Euro, the more time we have to be apart from that and to establish our trading links and allow the Eurozone to integrate, the more resilient we are. And as to the question of what's more important, economic performance or democracy, I'm terribly sorry, democracy, is the starting condition, which will then allow you for economic liberal democracies to provide the prosperity. What price democracy? I think it is the most precious gift which we can hand on to the next generation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to remind you of how you voted when you came in. 23% of you were undecided, 17% were for leave, and 60% were for remain. There has been some change. The undecided that was 23% has now shrunk down under the pressure of these arguments to just 11%
who remain undecided. The leave has leapt from 17% to 30%, but the remain vote remains almost unchanged. It was 60%, it is 59%, and therefore this group, we have chosen to remain part of the European <laughs> Union. I'm sure before you leave, you'll want to join me in thanking our three wise men, Chris Pickerton, Simon Bulmer, Damien Chalmers, checking back, Bill Moy, and of course, Nick Clegg, easily Stewart. Thank you very much. If you'd like to hear more, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse our back catalogue, then head to intelligencesquared.com. This episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast was produced by Hannah Kay and edited by Mark Roberts. Thanks for listening.